Welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thanks as always for tuning in. Hopefully you're enjoying the show and the variety of eye and mind opening guests that we bring to you on a regular basis. As regular listeners will have noticed, we have recently increased our output. We're almost weekly at this stage and that's testament to the support you've been giving us. So thank you very much to everybody who's been donating over the last weeks and months. You're managing to keep us afloat as we're currently free, completely non-profit and available on demand from alchemyradio.net and iTunes. And we intend to stay that way. We've no fixed cost on your donations or subscriptions and every little helps. So if you could spare even the small price of a cup of coffee every month, it would go a long, long way towards keeping us afloat in the manner I've just described. Our donate button is on the website and everything is hugely appreciated. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook as well. You'll find us on both social media platforms and we love to receive all your feedback and to interact with you there as well. So on to the show. This week's guest is Julian Rose. Julian is an author and pioneer in organic methods of farming, and I'll let him explain more about his very varied and extremely interesting background. Julian, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are you? I'm very well. Um, yes, in fact, uh, rude good health, I think the expression is. Well, rude good health is a fine, robust expression and one I'm very fond of. And I'm feeling the same despite the battering that our respective geographical locations are getting weather-wise at the moment. Tell us about where you are and what's happening. Well, I'm based on, uh, I have an organic farm based in South Oxfordshire, which incidentally, listeners might be interested to hear, we were amongst the forerunners um, in organic farming. I started converting this farm in 1975, would you believe? (laughs) And uh, at that time, there were no organic standards. No one knew what organic was even. And there were about seven of us who were registered to be official organic farmers via the Soil Association, which was the charity established just after the Second World War to try and promote organic agriculture. And um, I slowly converted my farm over a 10-year period, and we've been organic ever since. So it's a, it's a wonderful place, John. I mean, it, if listeners could see it, uh, they'd love it. There is a website, and maybe at the end of the show, I'll, I'll give the details of it. Yeah. But we're right down at the Thames at the bottom end, and we're up to about 300 feet in the hills at the other end. And it's very hilly, and the soil's very thin, and it's very stony. It's very difficult farm to farm, but it's a staggeringly beautiful place. Half forestry, half farmland. But the bottom end near the Thames is underwater completely already. You know, it looks a little bit like the pictures you've seen recently, maybe in the news of the Somerset levels. Mm. The whole of that Thames Valley is going more and more and more underwater. And we've got about 40 acres of permanent pasture underwater. The cattle have been moved up into the high ground, so there's no real problem there. Um, But it is a very dramatic scenario, and I think it's going to really... um, remind people of bigger issues which are at stake on this planet and we are going to look at some of those bigger issues in some depth julian but before we do if you wouldn't mind let's have a little bit about your background and how was it that you became one of the first organic farmers around the mid 70s what was it something that was always at the forefront of your family life growing up or how did you get from where you were to where you are now because i think a lot of people would be very interested in that well, that's a very important question and a very good one. As a matter of fact, it's a very unusual route because I was—I grew up in a family of four, 
<clears throat> I had an elder brother uh, and two elder sisters, and I'm the youngest, actually. And my, my parents uh, had inherited, my father had inherited this land, it's a country estate, really, you'd, you'd call it, of around 900 acres, with little cottages and farmland and forestry. And I was uh, going through the school system. Luckily, I have to tell the listeners, I failed to get into the private schools I was supposed to be sent to, i.e. Eton, um, which probably saved my life, actually. And I went off to another school where mixed, all sorts of types of people mixed with each other, rubbed shoulders. And I learned from a young age, you know, that we're all very similar to each other. And the sort of class issue and the money issue is a facade, which if you can break through it and establish real relationships with people, uh, you know, you don't need to go back to that facade again. It's far more important to go heart to heart. I started learning that at the school, which is quite a good place, really. And I got very involved in drama there, drama and sport. I wasn't very academic. And uh, out of that, um, masters at the school said, you might have a future for yourself in drama if, if you ever wanted to go that way as an actor. And I wasn't sure. But what happened was defined my life almost for me because when I was 16, my elder brother was killed in an amateur motor racing accident. And two years later, my father died of a stroke, aged 53. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I was the inheritor. I was the new owner of this Hardwick estate. And uh, it was very overwhelming. Yeah. First of all, of course, it was overwhelming to lose my brother and my father. But it was as overwhelming yet again to suddenly find myself responsible for this large area of land. But I was very fortunate in that my mother who is very, very capable and um, made a great job of looking after things here, was able to say to me, look, you know, Julian, you, can, you need to go your own way for a while, it's obvious, and, and find what it is you want to do in life. I can manage here with the help of, of various um, assistants and people who have expertise in the areas of farming. Mm. And I did. I went off to Australia, actually, I wanted to get far away from England, believe it or not. And I landed up there working on a large cattle station as a jackaroo, they call it. And it was involving, it was an incredible place. I remember it was in North Queensland. And the cattle station was the same size as Wales. Wow. And I didn't think it was particularly big. <laughs> you know, it is with these sort of crazy things. But there I met the Aboriginal people. And I had a wonderful rapport with them, just wonderful people, I mean, so deep, so humorous, always joking and smiling, and this incredible knowledge of the land, uh, uh, absolutely every last detail that they understood, in, in stark contrast to the farm manager, who was a white Australian, and could only think about how to kick these people around and try and make the maximum amount of money. Right. And then I landed up after that working for Australian Broadcasting Commission for a while, in the production department and then returned to England where I did actually land up going to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and studying acting and stage management. And out of that, I got involved in traditional theatre for a little bit, repertory theatre as an actor stage manager. And then I, I went to America and I joined up with an experimental theatre company which was doing very remarkable type of work. I mean, working with very few actors, playing lots of different roles, including the roles of uh, wind and trees and, and wild weather and sea and landscape. 
and the, the people that move through it, the actual characters. So that was beginning to satisfy a deeper thing in me, which was, which was beginning to emerge. But and always in the background of my mind was, I have to come back and take on this estate. Mm. So I'm trying to get to the point to tell everybody that when I came back to England, I got involved with the Soil Association. Um, actually, I was working abroad uh, in Belgium, which is where the theatre company, which was originally in America, moved to Belgium, and we had an international company based there. Actually, we had a school where we were teaching children uh, academic subjects and artistic subjects overlapping each other. And we were also touring from there. And a lecturer came to this place, Antwerp, in Belgium, in 1975, and gave a lecture called um, The Laws of the Land. And it was about something called organic farming. And it's sheer good luck that I happened to see a poster announcing that lecture. Because I went, and when I heard what it was about, and when I heard the issues, and, and, and how about it's working with nature rather than against nature, you know, I suddenly sort of got a flash, and I thought, that's it. That's what I'm supposed to do. When I get back to England, I'm just going to put myself 100% into this. Mm. And that's exactly what I did, straight from acting, uh, experimental theatre into farming, 1975. What an interesting path. And when you arrived back then in the UK, it must have been not a culture shock, but a big, big change for those around you with your newfound knowledge and your newfound interest. Because as you mentioned, I mean, this is 40 years ago, give or take. Um, it, it just wasn't a done thing and people didn't have knowledge of it. It wasn't necessarily, I would imagine, that there was a resistance to it, but it was just so new. And we all know what a lot of people are like when it comes to change. How was the change for those around you? And was it seen as, as radical or as something negative or did people embrace it with open arms? And what were the first steps, I suppose, Julian? Well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, it was pretty amazing, actually. I, I think people thought I was pretty crazy. That was, that was essentially what it was. My own, my mother most certainly didn't because I nodded my, my family, my sisters. They understood the principle of it. They loved the land. After all, they'd grown up there too. And they knew how beautiful it was. And of course, they wanted it to be looked after, but they didn't understand uh, the details of how you do it. Mm. But so they weren't against it. But when it came to dealing with other local farmers whose support I actually needed, like a farmer to bring a combine harvester in to harvest my first crops and everything, they were just saying, why would you want to go back? You know, why would you want to go backwards? I, I, we've been through all that stuff. You know, make life easier for yourself. Use herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, nitrate fertilizers and things. You know, this is just going backwards. So I paid no attention to that. I was, I was terribly excited, actually, at that time. And I got a great push of energy. And I absolutely knew that this was the right thing. And I sort of pushed on. And what it, we did was, there were only about five or six of us in the country, and we actually tended to visit each other and learn from each other mm. to try and avoid making the most obvious mistakes. And then um, I poured over all the old literature about traditional family farming. Uh, and pre-war literature was much the best, stuff written in the 1920s and 30s and even 40s, which talked about you know, crop rotations, um, how much farmyard manure to put back on the land, how to maintain the diversity of your hedges, how to keep your cattle healthy without the use of antibiotics and all that sort of thing. Uh, there was so much to, to delve into. And what I did was, John, it was fascinating, actually. 
There was a wonderful woman who's still alive on my farm. She's aged 97 years old now. She lives in a farm cottage on the farm itself. She was in her 60s at that time, and she taught me how to manage a dairy herd. But, you know, that dairy herd at that time was just three cows, Millie, Valley, and Bugle. Millie and Valley were two Guernseys, and Bugle uh, was a Frisian cow. And I didn't go for the Frisians. I noticed there was black and white everywhere in the countryside, and they were sort of mass production cows. Yeah. But I really fancied those Guernseys. Beautiful animals. Lovely, soft brown and white coloring. Very, very gentle. Good milk producers. Very high butterfat. Fabulous cream. And so I said to uh, Betty J, her name was, I said, Miss Betty, I- I'm going to go with these, and I'm going to gradually increase the herd based on these and I'm going to sell all my milk unpasteurized, organic and local and I'm going to do a delivery round myself and I'm going to milk the cows myself, I'm going to bottle the milk myself I will have to learn this in a hands-on way and that is how I got started John, believe it or not and it, <laughs> it went from there into, oh yeah I'll start with a few free range hens and, oh, actually a neighbour interested in running some, gave him a bit of land okay, started free range hens I included those on my milk round and then I had someone else who was interested in pigs who worked with me a little while. I said, all right, you buy the pigs and I'll buy them from you if you, find, if you don't want to stay very long. And he didn't stay very long. So I bought the size from him and then we started getting free range pork, organic pork. And it spread and spread and spread until eventually the whole farm, which is around about 350 acres, was converted into a, a very, very mixed organic farm where the quality of the products coming off it was very high. Uh, and the interest in the product at, by the, after 10 years of doing this was just beginning to be real. Because obviously at the beginning, no one really knew what they were getting or why uh, they should eat it as opposed to anything else. It took a very long time to make people aware of the dangers of the factory farm, the uh, mass processing industry, the supermarket global network of food production and consumption, which is destroying the health of a vast percentage of humanity to this day. Yes, an amazing story, I have to admit. It really is. And for those first 10 years, were there ever times of frustration or times where you thought, well, am I just banging my head against a brick wall here um, because this isn't catching on? Because 10 years is quite a long time. And I mean, it does show the dedication that you had to the Mm. ideas and to, I mean, to put them into practice for that length of time and only then a decade later feel that you're getting some kind of traction must have been quite difficult at times. It was actually. And um, the difficulty was really that, you know, this is an issue of economics as well. If it was nice if one had had a lot of money in the background and just uh, had been able to do it regardless, but we had to actually make this pay. And that is why I started very small. And I advise anybody who ever considers going into food and farming always start small because you, if you go wrong when you're small you don't lose much money you know yeah if you go wrong when you're big you can make a serious problem for yourself and i was determined not to take loan and so i i really built up very very slowly you know and it was actually very funny you you'd laugh and going back in my mind and memories of it when i set it off my little second hand um renault van delivering milk um, I had, you know, two of those three cows were in milk. Well, that produced enough for around about 20 customers, probably 15 customers, maybe. And 
when it got to the point where there were 20 customers, they were saying, oh, I know other people who might be interested too. I had to rush off and buy another cow in milk and bring her back, another Guernsey somewhere. So I had to find some local Guernsey here, go off, persuade the farmer to sell me one more cow, like that. <laughs> and I went up one by one by one by one. It was quite hilarious. And then eventually I had to buy a slightly bigger bulk tank, you know, a slightly bigger washing machine for my bottles and slightly bigger everything. But that way, at least I kept in touch on the financial side and was able to see uh, the development of an interest which was turning itself into something supportable for a farm of that size. And what I did in the meantime, John, is actually I rented out um, at least 50% of the land to another farmer, next door neighbor, who needed more land on condition that he used no nitrate fertilizers or pesticides. So in other words, I was able to get an income from him while I was building up my own unit. And by the time he got off the land, that land was already converted to organic too. It just needed another couple of years of grass clover lays to bring the fertility back up. I figured out a system of doing it, which did work. Yes, it could be enormously frustrating at times. Uh, a terrible thing was when the machinery broke down. And, you know, you knew you had to try and get something done and knew it's going to rain tomorrow. And, uh, oof, yeah, that sort of thing. Well, I can only imagine that kind of frustration, but there must have been some kind of payback aside from financially with the produce that you had and the reaction and reception that that was given from the people that you were serving. That's where very positive feedback, you see. I mean, I, I can't help but see it largely in a positive light. Oh, yes, there were the negative moments. And one of the most difficult negative moments was trying to deal with officialdom. You know, which wasn't used to this sort of thing. It can be hugely frustrating. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. Yeah. But yes, the the feedback from the people I was delivering this unpasteurized raw Guernsey milk and cream to, who you know, was wonderful. And they just said, "Oh God, wow, this is sensational." You know. And what happened? Now this is really amazing, really. And by 19, uh, it's, it's, it's when I came back to England to do it on full time. It was just the beginning of the 1980s, although I set it in motion when I was still abroad. And I started building up. By 1989, I had got up to a herd of about 20 cows and the rest of the farm was expanding and I'd taken on some help, paid help. Hmm. But what happened was, was that one day in February 1989, the government announced it was going to ban on pasteurized milk. And, you know, they had a reason for this actually that the milk marketing board uh, and the industry, the milk industry in quotes, was a bit worried by the potential for unpasteurized milk to uh, gain a niche market which might affect their market. Well, you know, I'm cynical enough to see that this works. Almost all small scale businesses run up against this eventually. Mm. So what happened was the government um, came to the conclusion with the help of the Food Safety Agency Standards Agency, that this was a product which should have been banned years ago because it's got to be dangerous. You know, it's not pasteurized, is it? You know, there's might be bacteria in it. And uh, people shouldn't be eating, drinking live foods. Heaven Every forbid. Dead food, any dead food is safe food. Any something that's been pasteurized, homogenized, and, and ultra heat treated, etc. So, anyway, they found a reason for trying to ban it, which was based on a cheese. In uh, called Brie de Moore, which is a Swiss unpasteurized brie, which apparently contained some uh, list listeria 
pathogens which had been brought into England. And in the process of them trying to trace what it, where it had gone, someone suddenly set up and said, oh, we've got unpasteurized things in England too, so we must ban it. So they announced suddenly that they were going to be a ban. And I was absolutely horrified because I was, you know, putting my heart and soul and all my money into my dairy herd. And I got my niche market going. You know, by then I had got quite a lot of customers, maybe 70 or 80 customers at least. And um, I was contacted by someone who was interested in a cheesemaker, actually, and a writer. And he said, we've got to do something. And I said, well, come over to my place. So we sat down there. And as we talked, I suddenly said, I'm going to start a campaign uh, to to break that, to stop this happening. And he and I together started, uh, founded an organization called the Association of Unpasteurized Milk Producers and Consumers. We contacted via the Milk Marketing Board's actual newsletter, which goes out to all farmers at that time, all dairy farmers. And we said, we're starting this, this organization. Please join if you're interested in trying to fight the proposed government ban. And we got about 250 farmers out of about 400 at that time probably producing raw milk, so just over half. Mm. It was a very good response. And then one day, I was um, about the second or third day after this announcement, someone rang me up who was on my milk round. He said, can I help you? So I said, well, that would be nice. I'm afraid I don't know you or what you do. And he said, no, that's, not, that's okay. He said, I live in the village. I'm the main newscaster for ITV television. I see, and I heard the story. You know, this was some, this story broke. It was actually headline news. Right. So they said, can we get up to your farm and do some uh, and film your setup? So I said, my God, can you? Yeah. Bring them up. Bring the crew up here. <laughs> and oddly enough, it was a Sunday, and I had to sort of recreate the milk round, which didn't happen on a Sunday, and tell my customers, be out there with a, with a glass and say, you know, how enthusiastic you are about the product. So we did all this filming. And then, lo and behold, the BBC wanted to come. So that uh, the, later on the same day, the BBC came and we did the whole thing again. And that night, it was on the main news, both BBC and ITV. And that was extraordinary because after that, we were running, you know, to keep up with all the people that wanted interviews and mm. uh, this, that, and the other, newspaper reporters. And after two and a half months, we won. The government backed down. I even had a letter from Mrs. Thatcher saying, I agree that entrepreneurial people are needed in the countryside. Uh, Prince Charles um, was very highly supportive. And the government was completely cracked under all this enthusiasm, which is a wonderful thing, hey? What do you think of that, John? It's not only wonderful. I think that's really demonstrative of people power and how people can act above bureaucracy and act almost as a watchdog for what's going on around them rather than just accepting the status quo that we should always live below those so-called higher powers of government and um, now the EU and any kind of bureaucracy like that because what you guys managed to do is a really huge achievement there. Well, it, it is actually... In- excuse me it is it is very true what you're saying i I think that looking back on it in hindsight you know actually it happened again 10 years later they they tried again in 1997 to ban it and we repeated the whole exercise and again the government backed down and to this day now you know there's a revival of unpasteurized milk and cream in england and lots of little micro diaries are picking up and we've pretty much you know, in spite of the fact that the Food Standards Agency is at this very moment we're speaking, reviewing the regulations on unpasteurized milk and is looking for a way to try and restrict it. 
there's a great groundswell of support that's built up over the years and I don't think they'll succeed. And um, I always give them a very hard time now if they get onto me and try and persuade me that this ought to be, this product ought to be banned. And the thing is that we humans, once we get the bit between our teeth, and once we start feeling our higher purpose in life, and that we're defending nature, we're defending, you know, the world is our garden. If we can see that our garden is actually not just a little place that we might own with a fence around it, but it extends out and out and out into the vastness of the planet, which is a garden and should be tended and looked after like an organic garden. If we get that in our gut, that feeling, we, we get enormous strength and powers and support from higher levels. And with that sort of level of support, we can achieve extraordinary things. Um, I will tell you a little bit later about another equally remarkable event which happened in Poland. But in the story thus far, that was a very amazing experience and a very enriching one for me. It continued to become more and more enriching if we continue this story because great strides were made even since then and not just with regard to milk production but just in the whole organic movement in general because it suddenly started to really snowball with you guys at the forefront of it. It did and um, I got onto the board of the soil, I was elected onto the board of the soil association quite early on actually so I got very involved in trying to help support the campaigns to expand people's understanding and awareness of what organic food is and what organic farming is. It was an extraordinary time. And there were a group of about seven or eight of us who worked entirely voluntarily for years and years and years and years. And the amount of work we went through in, in, in promoting and getting organic established as a concept and as a reality on the ground was enormous. And none of us ever thought we should be asking any money for this, you know. It's a little bit like you hear with people who have great healing powers, uh, spiritual powers probably, mm. and the ones who are the most forthright and able and usually very humble are the ones who say, I'm not going to charge you for this. You know, it's my gift. If you want to offer me something, that's fine. and you know, It would be very helpful. But I feel this is what I'm supposed to do. And I think we, this group of people all felt that way. And, you know, we shared each other's energy and enthusiasm, and we ran up against almost insurmountable problems continuously. But somehow or other, they were surmounted. But as it got into the 1990s, something started changing, and it was a bit worrying, really, because organic did become recognized, and the small and medium-sized farmers started getting bigger. And mainstream farmers started getting interesting, interested in the idea that, that possibly they could uh, make a little bit more money by going on to organic production, maybe 20% more or whatever. Mm. Uh, but without having that deep philosophical sense of the meaning of it, you know, just seeing it as a, as a good opportunity. And then uh, the, the people who sort of led the organic movement became a bit divided. And the majority in the end started going with we want to get our food into supermarkets and only that's the only way in which the, the you know the great majority of people in this country and abroad are going to ever know it exists and buy it because people shop in supermarkets don't they you know 80 percent possibly and i held out having practiced local um, sales direct selling as it's now called <clears throat> 
And, and then I said, if you don't get all your sales direct, then you move a little bit further afield, and then you move a little bit further afield, but you always basically try and sell the thing fresh, uh, optimum condition, seasonal, and local. And that was actually even enshrined into the Solar Association's remit from, from the beginning. But it swung more and more in favor of those who wanted a, a, a sort of big production scenario. And it, it went into the supermarkets. And once it did that, you know, supermarkets made their own demand about the way it had to be packaged and processed and mass-produced mass because they don't accept small amounts. You know, they only accept very large volumes. And then, of course, it has to conform in shape and size. And then there's very large amounts, particularly in the vegetable kingdom, uh, thrown out. And organic producers producing vegetables were telling me 35% of everything they were sent was rejected. So an example of so that might be if, if a carrot is the wrong colour for a supermarket shelf <laughs> or the wrong shape, or it would just be rejected. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's total insanity. It's got nothing to do with the organic approach. And when we were small and enthusiastic, no one thought about that. You know, you, we just sold our carrots and things wherever we could, usually through independent retailers uh, or direct to the public in some form. Um, but once the supermarkets took on a controlling influence on the, on the organic side, it, it slipped. It all started slipping. And it really reached the zenith of, of problems for me in the late 1990s when a product which was a pasteurized, semi-skimmed milk, uh, homogenized even, I think, um, was given an organic symbol. And I said that's the exact opposite of what should be organic. Yeah. The, the, the only way to drink that product is unpasteurized if you want decent health. The other stuff is basically indigestible and ultimately poisonous. And I lost. And, you know, that's the way it went. So I pulled out, really, of the more official organic status mm. promotion, but remain an organic farmer and farm uh, here in Oxfordshire and in, a little bit in Poland. We'll get to that eventually. But I've now become much more in sympathy with what I would call the general family farm, the traditional family farmer, which you have many in Ireland, who, you know, only uses a very small amount of perhaps nitrate fertilizer occasionally, and uh, who has somehow been forgotten in, because the press loved the organic. You know, you have organic and you have chemical. This is black and white. Yeah. Uh, but in between, there were all these very good, honest, humble, long-term farming families who were beavering on, doing very good farming practices, essentially, but using occasionally, like in an emergency, a chemical. And that's ruled out at the, at the organic level. And I began to be more of a campaigner for that type of farm and for the small family farmers, the survival of them, because they were under enormous threat throughout the 1990s and to, and to this day. And in fact, you know, we are losing 20,000 of those farms every year for the last 10 years at least. And uh, it's only because very clever uh, diversification projects and, and uh, various things like that, and part-time farming, in fact, has come to save those farms from going under. Otherwise, they would have gone completely by now. So, you see, it had its great upward time, and then it had its time when it level, plateaued out and, and became rather too, I would say, too close to the status quo, too well looked after by industry and to a degree even by government with various forms of subsidies. When you get locked into that scenario, you lose the freedom and independence 
to be entrepreneurial and you have to start conforming in order to be sure that you're going to have the, the income you require to keep going. And that timeline is very, very interesting because there's quite a bit of cynicism, I would notice, even in my own locality, for example, here in Ireland, with regard to organic. And you mentioned a black and white scenario, and I think that very much exists in the general populace. You have people who are fervently pro-organic to the point of almost zealotry, and then you have those who are completely cynical and anti-organic because they see it as a scam for more money or whatever. Yeah. So there's, there's this division, and right in the middle, there's this huge swathe of people who are almost, uh, when I'm talking about farmers when I say people here, who are almost ostracized because they apply a certain sensibility to what it is they do, as opposed to this black and white scenario. And I think yeah. for, when it comes to most things in life, there's a huge grey area, and when, when bureaucracy is introduced that grey area is almost always ignored to a large degree. And I think that seems to be what you've described with regard to what happened with the organic movement. Oh, it is. And you put it very well. Um, You see, the people uh, who saw themselves as the sort of leader element within organic farming had very real ambitions about climbing the ladder (laughs) and getting, getting to the top. Um, and that's a very different thing from only wanting to be a good farmer. Uh, it's a completely different thing. Not to say that these people haven't got, you know, very, very made a huge, hugely important contribution to kicking off a, a sort of new, fresh approach to what was called organic. I mean, actually, organic is a bit of a mis- misnomer because all farming up until this, or the large majority of farms up until the Second World War we're using uh, rotations, um, we're using farmyard manure, you know, we're practicing uh, proper uh, animal husbandry, and in effect, we're virtually organic by default. So what happened in the 1970s and 80s was a reinvention of that under a new name, but they didn't want other people to really realize that it was just an extension of a traditional farming system which had been going for a couple of hundred years. So in a way, it was a bit of a bit cheeky to create this whole new world around something called organic when it had actually pretty much existed in a very similar form um, many years be- for many years before then. The language is quite interesting surrounding it because even the word organic seems to have become a bastardized form of what it was in the 70s and 80s. And it's become at various times something trendy, which again, people will will rail against certain elements of society will rail against anything that's trendy. And I think, again, it just leads to a polarization surrounding the essence of what organic farming should be. And that's about the quality of the produce. And there's a huge health factor involved there as well. Let's talk about that for a little while. Julian because it's not just about taste it's not just about uh, sustaining business and entrepreneurial activity there is also a huge health factor here it's a massive health factor it's so big now uh, in 2014 that I mean I've just come back from a conference a couple of days ago uh, hitting that issue uh, that I have to say I would advise everybody listening to this program to shift, if you haven't already, onto organic food or local fresh food where you know the farmer and you know his production methods. It doesn't have to be certified organic. It's quite expensive for the farmer and involves quite a lot of bureaucracy. It can be just that you find or you hear about people producing food the right way ecologically without using 
you know, or using very minimal form of uh, toxic pesticides and producing really good food, which means you, the consumer, have to become more aware. You have to become more knowledgeable about farming systems, have to do your homework, not just expect to be given something. But the health implications are vast because what has emerged is that um, the main nitrate fertilizers um, are basically coming out of the munitions industry. There was a, a lot of nitrate left over from, from bomb making the Second World War. And some bright spark decided that uh, there surely must be another use for that in these times of, of peace. So they found that actually if you process this product a bit more and throw it on the ground, it makes the grass grow 25% faster than if you don't. And that product, nitrate fertilizer, um, weakens the stem of the plant and alters its DNA because it gets a rush, a little bit like when you drink a Coca-Cola. You get this sugar rush and then you go down again because you're not stimulating the total immune system. You're not stimulating the body's health. You're getting a sugar rush. You're getting a luxury uptake factor from nitrate. In the 1970s and 60s and 70s, almost all farmers abandoned farmyard manure in favor of nitrate. But they got themselves on what you call the chemical treadmill by doing this. Because as the farm, as the products, let's say cereals like wheat, barley, oats, etc., got weakened in the stem, so the pests attacked them. Whereas before they hadn't, they might have attacked, but they didn't win the battle. Mm. They started winning the battle. So the farmers turned back to the agrochemical industry. What are we going to do now? And they said, Well, we've got an answer to that. It's called a fungicide. You know, it's also a toxic product. They didn't tell them that. And you spray that on against your bug, uh, against um, the fungicide. Excuse me, is against fungus attacks, uh, pest attacks with a pesticide. So you know, we've got something called pesticide. And spray that on three times during your production system, and, and that should cure it. And then they got these fungal attacks. You know, a few years later, I said, what, what do we do now? We've got fungal. Oh, yeah, we've got another product for that. It's called fungicide. And you spray that on five times. You put the nitrate on twice. And then they said, we've got another problem. You've got so it went on and on and on. And that is what modern farming is, unfortunately. It's entirely reliant on toxic agrochemicals. So when you're eating that food, you are building slowly a toxicity within your own body which is going to upset your metabolism, your gut, and your immune system. And once those three start going, liver and kidney problems will be the first ones to appear, and then your overall health will be affected quite severely in varying ways, many various ways, of course. So the health implications of getting off that type of a diet and onto one where real food is being produced is becoming for many 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 people absolutely crucial uh, and it's become so important that more people are doing research into what is actually happening and out of this research we're learning all, more and more horror stories frankly I, mean, I have to be honest about it mm. I mean I like many of the farmers very much who, who, who still are unfortunately using these methods but the reality for the, for the buyer um, is that what they're ingesting shouldn't be called food. And it should be called something else. It should have a health warning on it, essentially, like cigarettes, you know. Uh, and the health implications uh, of some of the herbicides being used are now in the front line, along with genetic modification of food. 
genetic modification of food is the height, is the, is the very top of the agrochemical pyramid. Here you've got something moving into a virtual reality world. You know, it's a laboratory food. Mm. You've got genes taken from, let's say, a, an Icelandic cod and put into a tomato. And the uh, resulting product is supposed to be something which you could ship from California to London without it freezing or going mushy in the airplane hold because the cod gene has that effect on the tomato. But they claim that it's no different than an ordinary tomato. And you have to be extremely foolish to believe anything like that. Once you've injected a completely different species which would never, in nature, cross-fertilize. You wouldn't have tomatoes and cods cross-fertilizing with one another. You couldn't possibly get away without altering the entire DNA of the product. And the trouble is, we now start discovering, maybe 20 years later after the first invention of this type of food, that the effects of feeding um, genetically modified animal feed to animals is... D very deleterious, and the most recent um, research projects done by independent laboratories, and it's very different from the results that you get from the industry's mm. uh, research like Monsanto. The independent laboratory researchers, five different um, research stations in Europe, at the highest level, and I'd say very, very reputable organizations, have all come up with the same results when rodents were fed a diluted diet of the typical GMO animal feed fed to cows and pigs and chickens en masse today. And that feed, which is largely either soya or maize, incidentally, genetically modified soya and maize, a lot of it grown in North America or Brazil, um, or Argentina, is uh, extraordinary. They fed it to mice, and after one year, the mice developed extreme um, lesions of the kidneys and the liver. After, in the second year, they, towards the end of the second year, they became infertile, that is, incapable of reproducing. And out of the five, about five years, they died an early death, four years might have, been, might have been. And this was reproduced independently, totally independently, in five different countries. In, in Russia, the Academy of Sciences, um, in France at the Kain Laboratory with Professor Sorolini leading the team in Italy and in England. Uh, it started with Professor Pushtai finding that potatoes were not the same when they're genetically modified as they are when they're normal. And for revealing that fact back in about 1995, he was immediately thrown out of the Rowett Institute in Scotland overnight, and all his papers were seized, and he was told never to breathe a word about that again. So you can see that there was something going on there which the public were being completely kept in the dark about. So when you put it all together, the genetic modification of food and the agrochemicals, I think that you've got to, you know, if you're going to take your destiny in your own hands and your children's destinies, you've got to find another lifestyle. You've got to find another approach whereby you can have constant access on a daily level to real healthful foods. And I can just imagine some people thinking now, well, John and Julian, that's all very well, but... 
the price of organic food and the time and effort it takes to go out and find a farmer. I live in the middle of a, a busy city, for example. How am I going to go out and find a farmer who's going to provide me with, uh, with crooked carrots, which I don't like the look of. I can't serve those up to my <laughs> dinner guests or my kids or whatever it is. I'll just go to the local Tesco and I'll buy my proper carrots that have never done me or my parents or my family any harm to date. Any issues that may arise? Well, we'll deal with those as they come because we've got medicine, don't we? And it's more advanced than it's ever been. So what would you say to those people? Very right. Absolutely. What I would say to those people is you have to do your research. Now, the thing about health is this. You can be feeling fine um, for, for long periods of time. And then very suddenly you can have a major health problem around the corner. Uh, people are all different, actually. I mean, first of all, you have to accept the fact that some people have very strong metabolisms and some people have rather weak metabolisms. Some people have in-between metabolisms, etc., and the immune system strength and all the rest of it. Some people can eat pretty much junk food almost all their life and, and get away with it. Mm. And you know, maybe, maybe be in their 90s before they die. Uh, other people with more sensitive uh, um, organs, whatever, probably can't. But it's a twofold issue, because what health is about is not only about our own health, which is I call selfish health. It's about the health of the planet altogether. It's about the health of the environment, the health of the soil, the health of trees, rivers, water, all of If you're going to buy and support a system that produces food which is destroying all those things, every time you go to Tesco and you're supporting what you call factory-farmed chickens and pigs typically in the case of chickens oh let's say you know 5,000 chickens living in a shed with no light daylight only neon lights strip bulbs in cages where they can only just turn around being fed genetically modified food with antibiotics in them living for three months when they could live for five years you are supporting something which is a concentration camp for animals. Mm. Every time you buy that product, you are supporting that way of life. There's no way one can deny it. Only by changing your attitude about what you feel about the world and how you want to support the future of this planet and its ecology and its diversity and the quality of the foods. It's a long-term issue. You see, health isn't a short-term issue. You can get away with it, maybe. But the real price of uh, good health is taking a serious interest in the totality of the situation, not just in how you feel. Because ultimately, if you might get away with it, but the next generation most certainly won't. If genetically modified food is causing sterility in mice, over a period of one and a half years, it'll cause sterility in all human beings in 20. And in fact, if you look at the statistics for America, it's been eating GM foods, and 90% of all soya, all maize, and many other things are genetically modified in America. The highest rates in the Western world of sterility are there. You know, the sperm count has dropped. Women are finding it extremely difficult to get pregnant. And it's the beginning, but only just the beginning, of what could be a massive genocide on the human race and, and it sounds all terribly extreme but the fact is I'm giving warning I've done the work I've, I've done the research I've had the experience of being a farmer from both sides and I can tell the consumer that if they care about their health and the health of the planet they're strongly advised 
to move away from mass-produced factory foods which are containing pesticide residues, even if those haven't yet hurt you, and are in, in gradually destroying and causing sterility in the soil. So that in, by the time two generations ahead are coming along, the legacy that will be passing to them will be complete disaster. And that is what we should be considering in our lives, not just our own selfish health. I think you've hit the nail on the head there and it reminds me a little bit of the ticking time bomb because while the danger mightn't immediately seem obvious um, on a day-to-day level, eventually when that timer counts down to zero, there'll be an absolute explosion of unprecedented proportions with regard to global health and that is where we're headed because the research as you say is being done and has been done independently and if you look at that research and study it very very carefully there is only one conclusion and that's that we're in for a massive massive awakening (laughs) and um, and let's just hope and hope the awakening comes before it's too late because it could easily be the case that things are irreversible and you mentioned very very early on in our conversation that there could be a cross-contamination with regard to GMO and organic foods and that's a major issue for organic growers in regions that have fully embraced GMO. Can you talk a little bit about that and what what the implications are and what exactly that means Julian? Yes certainly. Um, Cross-contamination between GMO and organic foods or even what we call conventional foods which would be typical of what many family farmers are producing and are close to being organic but not specifically organic. This cross-contamination is inevitable if genetically modified crops are being grown. It's inescapable actually Um, and it's very obvious. I think a child could have worked it out. You have a transgenic product containing the genes of other plants which have actually in some cases some of these genes no relation to the plant kingdom at all growing in the fields next to yours all you require really is a, is a good gale and the pollen blows straight through and uh, that pollen mixes with the pollen of the plants you're growing and it will ultimately get into the dna of your plants uh, bees forage normally at distances of up to five kilometers from where they normally from their local hives they of course cross-pollinate and they choose different plants and they cross-pollinate plants they will be cross-pollinating insects will be cross-pollinating birds will be cross-pollinating people walking between these crops tractors at everything will be opening up more and more and more possibilities of cross-contamination and would you believe the government, you know, in England and various other countries that still support GMO, says, oh no, all you need is a 20-meter barrier, and you'll be fine. You know, a 20-meter barrier, which is a blank piece of ground or some form of um, crop, which is the intermediary between these two, and it'll be fine. Well, you see, the thing is, when you hear this, you realize that they're totally bought out. You nobody who knows anything about food and farming or biology or nature could possibly swallow that nonsense. So you think, well, what are they doing? You know, what are these government officials up to? And then you start doing that research and you say, oh, my heavens, you know, this is so extreme that you know, the industry has convinced the lobbyists from Monsanto and DuPont and Pioneer and Syngenta and ICI and they've all, you know, come in there with so much money and so many glossy magazines and well-paid scientists to back it all up and they've simply convinced government ministers 
that that is modern farming, you know. That is what's needed if you want to keep at the cutting edge of, of, of modernity and moving forward. And if you also want our support at election time, and I think you probably do, don't you, Minister? Then um, you go with us. And that is the level of corruption, which is ubiquitous in, in Europe and North America and probably the world. And there, you know, the public have to make the next major choice. You're going to go on supporting that thing called democracy when you can see it's not remotely interested in your welfare and in your future. Uh, I hope not. And that starts to expand the mind. And then you start putting together your health awareness with your social and uh, political awareness. And you gradually start acquiring the bigger picture. And in fact, just to interject at this point, uh, I, I, just, I have written two books on this subject. One's called Changing Course for Life, Local Solutions to Glo Global Problems, came out three years ago. And the most recent one, which came out just a couple of months ago, is In Defense of Life, um, essays on the radical reworking of green wisdom. And I try to, the reason I, I brought the books out is to really try and take people through the stages of awareness. And so that by the time they get to the end of reading these books, they actually get the whole picture. They look, they can see it from the political angle, from the environmental angle. They can see it from the social angle, from the spiritual angle. And they can see it from all the different backgrounds, and it all points one way, which is what you were saying earlier on, that we have to actually start taking control of our own destinies. We have to start making the decisions. And I suggest, if you're interested in politics, that we need to do it locally, because you're not going to change these people in high office. It's worth trying, and one must try. Mm. But actually, the reality is we need to go right back to the grassroots beginning again, to the community, almost to the tribe, and start from our villages and small towns, recreating that community, making the decisions which are important for ourselves at the community level, and simply, in certain cases, absolutely refusing to go along with this now completely hijacked form of democracy, which is ruining our planet. And I think it's a form of democracy, and I, I use the word advisedly, we'll, we'll use inverted commas there for democracy, but I think it is a form of democracy that um, relies heavily on a tacit consent from the people. And there, I mean, by various methods, there is a lot of distraction to divert people's attention away from real issues. And th this is a real issue, and you mentioned grassroots level. And the way society seems to be structured, certainly in the Western world at the moment, it seems to be that there are so many distractions that take away or, or divert our attention from the grassroots level. And that's the only place that things can be changed. And I think that's very clearly outlined, particularly in Changing Course for Life, local solutions to global problems, because it is only at a local level that global problems can be solved because everything stems from there. And I think if people choose to ignore it, well, then it is a tacit acceptance. We have a responsibility to ourselves and to the generation that follows us and to everybody around us to actually grab the bull by the horns and take, take some kind of issue with that that's harmful to us. And I think it begins with what we put in our bodies because everything stems from there. Absolutely right. Um, it is absolutely the case that the need to take a non-passive position is the first major stepping stone for anybody that wants to free themselves from the treadmill. And we are all educated, unfortunately, 
to believe that people in higher office and what they can now call experts have uh, some genuine knowledge which we need to absorb and use in our lives. But as we grow older and see the way the world works, we understand more and more that it's skewed, and it's always skewed in favor of one thing, the accumulation of wealth. Therefore, the truth suffers. It suffers enormously to the degree to which it, the, the, the elements of truth left in what is called democracy become so small that the crisis reaches proportions which demand radical change. And we are at this tipping point of needing radical change. And it is going to be a people's-led radical change. It has to be because of the extremity of the situation. And people have to get off their backsides and stop being passive. It's going to be difficult, and it is extremely difficult. You see, they, the people who are what you might call the controlling influence in society, extremely clever. They're in the background, some of them. You don't actually see their names, but they're certainly in the, in the top end of the banking trade, that's for sure. They, they've worked out the psychology of the human being to a perfection. They're geniuses, some of them. And they know that they can divert your concentration very easily by putting another little pleasure up in front of you mm. or a new gizmo to play with or a new car or whatever it might be, a new holiday in some exotic place. It's always that which seems to get the upper hand over people's deeper intuitive concentration and ability to develop their own um, their own vision of the future and work together to ensure that vision takes place. Now I'm going to give an interesting example of how once you do take the bull by the horns and start working with other people in that spirit, you can achieve amazing things. You heard about the Real Milk campaign and how that achieved it. Yeah. Well, in the year 2000, um, <clears throat> I met up with a, a remarkable woman from Poland called Jadwiga Wapata, who ran an organ, runs just founded an organization called the International Coalition to Protect the Polish Countryside, and she grew up on a very small farm, a little small holding with a large family, and they all survived on the land very well, ate extremely good food, managed to earn a small amount of money, just enough to make life possible. And uh, she went later on and worked and went to university in Krakow and studied mathematics and soon realized that this wasn't really going to be for her and came back to the countryside again and started helping the small farmer she saw the writing on the wall for the small farmer in Poland because the EU was about to uh, get its grips on Poland and the big industries were going to move in. Well, I met her in a conference in London in 2000 and she invited me to come and be a co-director of the International Coalition to Protect the Polish Countryside. And at that point, I just started winding down some of my farming work, hands-on work, and passing them over to other people. <coughs> who were, had already proved themselves as being very capable. And so I decided I would do this. And I went over to Poland, and, and to cut a long story short, I'm still working there today, um, more than I am in England at the moment. And we, one of the first campaigns, which I said to Ed Viga, I think we need to try and concentrate on is to stop genetically modified organisms getting into the food chain in Poland. And no one in Poland even had heard about genetically modified food. <laughs> you know, it's a completely new idea, really. Mm. But I said, from my experience in England, I've discovered that if you work more at the local level 
and, and make people aware of what the dangers are. They're like, more likely to be responsive if you go straight to government. Attempted at that level, they're not even going to bother to listen to you. Yeah. So we worked out a sort of campaign strategy, which involved going to meet um, some figures in the provincial governments, of which there are 16 provinces in Poland, each governed by a board and the chairman of that board. And through good fortune and a, and a connection of Yadrigas, we met a man who had some influence within his province, and we warned him that if you go down that road, it'll be the end of the reputation of Poland for having real proper peasant farmhouse foods, which people are still looking for today. It will disrupt the biodiversity of nature, which is a marvelous thing in that country. More biodiversity in Poland than anywhere else in Europe still remains. Something like 40,000 pairs of nesting storks is a very good example. Uh, you know, masses of wildflowers still, um, good quality uh, water available, etc. And we warned them that this would be the beginning of the end of all that and that tourism would ultimately be affected and all the rest of it. And we got the message through that state. We said, what you can do is make a symbolic gesture. You can try and persuade your board <coughs> that you can set yourself up as a GMO-free zone. So the state of Podkarpatia in this particular case could be a GMO-free zone. It'll be symbolic, but it'll be a powerful message, and it'll alert the press and other people. And they did. And then he, we invited him to come and give a talk in Malopolska province, which is where we're based, and he did. And we worked on the board there, and the board also adopted it. And it went from one to another to another, this is in 2004, 2005. And by 2006, we had the whole of Poland declared GMO-free zone. Amazing. The whole of Poland, 16 provinces. Every one of them, the chairman of the boards, had come up with a statement and it said, we propose to keep our province free from GMO for the following reasons. We were astounded, of course, but we then said to them, the next thing for you to do, because it's a very powerful voice, political voice, obviously, mm. is to write to the president of Poland and say, you demand a ban of the import and planting of genetically modified organisms, uh, seeds particularly, of course. And they did. And three months later, he banned it. The president of Poland banned the import and planting of GMO. And that campaign had really been um, launched and run by, let's say, four or five people, of which Vigo and I were the sort of starting point. And so I hope that gives people a chance to, once they've absorbed it, um, to realize that we have this enormous potential. If we get on the side of nature and the forces of good and the forces of light, the forces of diversity, you know, the, everything which is beautiful about life, which is strong, which is passionate. Again, as I said about the milk campaign, we will be given unusual powers of influence, and we will be able to make change, even critical point in time, which I think you were saying, it's, 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 it is a race against time now. Yeah. Therefore, we need to be able to adopt this, this, um, this type of passion, this type of belief, faster than just waiting for it to happen to us. Uh, today, unfortunately, uh, it's the government, well, the government after, in 2006 that put through this ban, incidentally, they also said they were going to ban animal feed, GM animal feed, about a year later. So 
six months later, that government was out. There was a massive um, reaction, a kickback by, by sort of multinational corporations and various people who put money into governments and they said, we can't have this, you know, no way. And they, they were out. And um, the government that replaced them was much more open to doing deals with the industry and with the European Union, for that matter. Uh, so when, since then, we've had a much harder job in holding the line, but we just about have, and still to this day, Poland is a GMO-free zone, essentially, and we have many more people who are aware of what the implications are of that failing, and we hope we've been able to secure it in the long term. And what are your hopes and your expectation then as we move into this critical time, Julian? I mean, not just in Poland, but globally. Poland is certainly demonstrative of what can be done when even a small group of people decide to take decisive action and to choose their own path. But globally, what do you think we're looking at? Are you positive about the outcome or what way do you think it will go? Well, globally, um, this what I've said, of course, applies globally. Um, we have a staggering range of different cultures and, and levels of awareness around the world that we don't even know quite what's going on in many places. But one thing we have all in common is something called life. And um, you find in poorer countries of the world and in countries that still operate close to the ground, peasant um, agricultural uh, communities in Africa and India and South America and all over, an enormously rich spirit. an enormously uh, tough skin to <laughs> tolerance of, of everything which is disastrous. And if those people, and I'm talking about you know, a high percentage of the world's population, maybe 5 billion out of 7 billion, you know, fit that category. Um, if we can help them to hold on to their traditional ways of life, and hold on to the swapping of their native seeds and hold on to the traditions which have endured for thousands of years of, which have enabled them to learn how to work with nature rather than against it. And if, if we can teach them the dangers of the international, multinational corporation, which are government, uh, in, so to speak, working hand in hand with them, coming to their countries and demanding that they give up that way of life and that they provide the, um, the elements of capital and minerals and oil and all the rest of it that the West needs to carry on its completely unsustainable lifestyle. If we can help them to see that danger before they're wiped out by it, the world will be changed, will be saved. If we fail in that and the corporations simply do um, push their way in and people fall for the, for the sugary um, descriptions of what they will get as a result of this, which is slavery, <laughs> frankly, sweatshops and all the rest of it, and their, their countries and their biodiversity ruined forever, then we will have a total catastrophe on the planet. So uh, in a very humanitarian way, I'm not really dealing quite yet with the spiritual implications, but on a very humanitarian level, those people are the ones we have to get to and get the message to that what we have achieved in the West and North America is unsustainable. The experiment is a failure. 
If you adopt it, you will go down exactly the wrong route. Hang on to what you've got already. Re-research your roots. Stick with your indigenous agricultural methods. Uh, and you will pull through. In fact, you might even become the leader ultimately in the world because those small-scale units are the future, in my view, and the large-scale ones will break down as oil becomes too expensive and as the soil becomes too sterile and as the weeds overtake the ability of the herbicides, etc., to destroy them. You know, we are going to have to work ourselves our way back to the smaller scale, ecologically managed peasant farms. And those examples exist in indigenous countries all over the world. And if they can be robust enough to hold on in there and the message spreads back out again from them, the planet, I believe, will be saved. And I am optimistic, essentially, yes. And I think there is a spiritual factor there as well. You very, very briefly mentioned it. And with all indigenous cultures, that was a huge part of anything physical that they did, whether it was to do with the land or anything else. Spirituality was very much at the centre of that. And I, I think you'd probably agree with me when I say there's been a huge disconnect in the Western world between spirituality and pretty much everything else that we do or perceive. Yes. <laughs> How right you are. Anyway, yes, I mean, so true. Uh, the word, it actually, the beauty of, of, of working in Poland is that people are very, very open to that level. Um, there's a much deeper raft of spiritual awareness in that country. And so, you know, you use the word spiritual and people are quite at home with it. I mean, okay, they will be using it in the majority, probably in the fairly standard Catholic sense of, the, of how it's used in the church. But adoration of Mother Mary and Jesus is not wrong. It's just that it has to go further. Um, so there, I feel much more comfortable on a spiritual level. In England, I feel it's exactly the opposite. And it's ter people are terrified of it, you know. <laughs> it's like a threat. What? Spiritual? Oh, help, you know. As long as that remains, that disconnect, things will always be getting worse. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. And I think all this enormous flooding which is now taking place right you know, in my backyard in England is going to get worse still. And it is going to be seen in apocalyptic terms by the end of this month. People will be remembering stories biblical stories of great floods and great acts of nature which virtually destroyed the planet. But, you see, on the karmic level, this country, England, has been responsible for the most heinous crimes in its colonization and empire building. Mm. And almost nobody in this country today even wants to talk about that. And this is truly shocking. So what happens? You get retribution. It's not personal. It's impersonal. And it's necessary because it's a form of cleansing. There's going to be a vast cleansing taking place. And that is going to take many forms, and they'll be very extreme, depending on where you live. Climate is going to change. But out of it, somewhere in the future, is going to come the seeds of a huge and glorious type of hope. You know, the sun will shine again, and mankind will discover its true nature and how we deviated so far from that. And it, it, this is simply, I think, it's probably a law of physics. You don't even have to get into the spiritual. But the spiritual is, a, is an intuitive way of understanding how life works, as opposed to a book understanding of it, or an academic one, or a scientific one. I mean, the intuitive one is our gift. 
And if people can give themselves the time and have the patience and the calm to listen, they will be guided to this time of approaching we're in, actually. And they will find great richness, and they will find that they have the powers to stand up amidst the, amidst the storm and actually go forwards, genuinely forwards, maybe for the first time. And those people will join together. We call it ARCs. Uh, we have a series of workshops in Poland called Quit the Matrix, Build the Ark, with which anyone listening to this program is very welcome. Um, what we're doing there is, is making people aware of the simple issues, which we all need to take on board again, um, and so that we can work together, those of us who are feeling that we have a similar vibrational connection with each other, similar vision, and we will be building arcs, and those arcs will we'll be building all over the world, and they will connect with each other eventually, and we'll be real rebuilding from the grassroots level, and I think, hopefully, that's the future. And fingers crossed it is, and I think one thing that people could possibly be mindful of is that the Earth itself is a single organic entity, and it's not just the little parts of it that we see. So quite often, I think we lose a sense of, uh, of, of the wood for only seeing the trees. Nature has a way of redressing the balance, and yeah. it might be over 20,000 years, it might be over 20 million years, it might be over two years. It could be in the yeah. space of two hours, for example, with a flood or whatever, but nature knows what's best for itself, and that transcends yeah. any of our multinational company, companies or our quest for profit, and I think that's where spirituality ties into things. And essentially, it appears to me, both with our conversation and with the books, Julian, that you're, you're advocating a return to humanity, and allied with that is a spirituality. It's, it's an all-encompassing entity as opposed to just let's look at milk or let's look at GMO or let's look at A, B, C or D. It's this wholeness that we seem to have lost over generations and generations. Well said, beautifully put. And exactly that, of course it is. And, you know, anyone can have this experience. Anyone can, can draw that out of themselves in the end. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing when it starts to emerge in you. You just feel so buoyed up by it. You feel so well physically and mentally and spiritually. And, and you, you know, you just delight and you offer back the fruits of this every day to the creator that created you and the planet. And you create a symbiotic relationship with what is called God. And the more symbiotic it becomes, the more power both the God gets and you get. And this is a fantastic phenomena, um, which we'll never understand intellectually, because it's well beyond the intellect. It's a deep, 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 deep thing. It's bottomless in its depth. And that's, that's is life itself, which is why I called my new book In Defense of Life, <laughs> quite simply, yeah. because life itself needs defending now, and you defend it by getting involved with it not by sitting and waiting or praying even, or by, you know, whatever means you might think is going to help your little patch survive. You've got to get out there now, get into the bigger picture, understand the connections and enjoy it because it's a great, great thing. For those who are interested, Julian, as we begin to tie things up, what are the websites and how can people buy the books? Yes, well, the website it, um, is www.julianrose.com dot info and that on that website you will find all the information about, about the projects and about the two books changing course for life and in defense of life and how to get them incidentally you can get the most recent one in defense of life also on amazon.com and from bookshops mm -hmm. it's quite widely distributed whereas on the first one changing course for life 
Not so much so, but you can get it through writing to me, uh, which you will find my how to contact me, how to contact the author, I think it says, on the website. And um, we would be delighted to hear, of course, from anybody who wishes to purchase a book or even who wants to make any comments uh, or tell me a life story. Be careful what you wish for. You might get quite, quite, quite <laughs> a true. number of those. Okay, I'll pull back on that. No, life stories in one paragraph, please. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we will get the links up on the website. Have you any parting message for anybody who might uh, might be fascinated or might be resistant to what we were talking about today? Um, yes, I do. I do. I, I think things probably just relax, you know? And, and you don't get here by to this point by uh, worrying. The, the greatest block is fear. Fear is the greatest block. And we, cannot, we cannot get to our true selves with fear. Now, fear is also important. You know, if you're walking towards the edge of a cliff or you're going to try and cross a busy road you know, without any uh, traffic lights and cars are whizzing to and fro, you need that instinct of fear to stop you. So I'm not saying don't be afraid, but I'm saying don't be afraid of the bigger issue. It's a beautiful, warm, welcoming hand, actually. So there's nothing to be frightened of. It's just a question of opening your heart. Opening your heart, opening your mind. And I would say, for those people who have a very busy lifestyle, who are probably urban-based, it's going to be important to try and be less busy and to try and find some time where you can sit quietly do some yoga exercises or some meditation, whatever it might be, something on the spiritual route, just to get you started, just to get the thing underway, put a bit of fuel in the tank. And, uh, but that's really, everybody has a different situation in life. No two people are the like. We all have our different ways of absorbing information and feeling what can and can't be done. But underneath it all, we have been imbued with powers which have hardly been tapped at all yet. And the future is a very exciting one because we're going to be tapping those powers more and more and more. I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Julian Rose, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Alchemy Radio. Vegetables, fresh fruit and whole wheat I'm from the old school My household smell like soul food, bruh Curry falafel, barbecue tofu No fish though, no candy bars, no cigarettes Only ganja, fresh squeezed juice from oranges Exercising daily to stay healthy And I rarely drink water out the tap Cause it's filthy Lentil soup is mental fruit And ginger root is good for the use Fresh vegetable with them ice-high stool Sweet yam fries with the green Hallelujah. Careful how you season and prepare your foods Cause you don't wanna lose vitamins and minerals And that's the jewel Life brings life, it's valuable So I eat what come from the ground, it's natural Let your food be your medicine, no accelerant Strictly herb generates from the sun Cause I got melanin and drink water 
Eight glasses a day Cause that's what they say They say you are what you eat So I strive to eat healthy My goal in life is not to be rich or wealthy Cause true wealth come from good health and wise ways We got to start taking better care of ourselves They say you are what you eat So I strive to eat healthy My goal in life is not to be rich or wealthy Cause true wealth come from good health and wise ways We got to start taking better care of ourselves Be healthy y'all yeah, 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 hold the fuck up, yo Take this little intermission Listen what the fuck we got to say, you know World is born, son Niggas been living fat for too long, you know what I'm saying Smoking bogeys, fucking drinking all types of shit Wailing out, not giving a fuck what they put in their body, son You know what I'm saying About time niggas start thinking about that shit, son You know what I'm saying That shit is fucking making us deteriorate, son Word up, we got care about our little babies and shit, son Niggas got kids to raise Straight up, you gotta start learning yourself, learning about your health, son. Learning this world we live in, kid, you know what I'm saying? It's time to start changing all that shit, God. Word up. So I'm gonna leave y'all niggas on some shit like that, you know what I mean? Word up, your niggas better start using your minds and shit, kid. Peace. Alchemy Radio. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we rely on your donations to keep the show in its current free and ad-free format and are very, very grateful for all the help you can offer. There's no fixed cost in your donations. Every little helps as well. So, for example, if you could spare even the price of a cup of coffee every month, it would go a long way towards helping to keep us afloat. Our donate and subscribe buttons are on the website and everything is hugely appreciated. So thank you to everybody who has helped out over the last number of weeks. Next week's guest is Laird Scranton and we'll be talking about his guide to cosmology and the Velikovsky heresies. And of course, as always, it promises to be a fascinating conversation. Until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Alchemy Radio. Conceive. Alchemy Radio. Believe. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?